HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit internationalculinarycenter.com. Hey, what's up? This is Jack Inslee, host of Full Service Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this show, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Eat Your Words, broadcasting live from Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Talia Ralph, bringing you all the best in words about food, maybe even some food about words. Today, we are taking a trip to Texas via a tiny New York kitchen, specifically the New York kitchen of Lisa Fain. <laughs> Lisa has been blogging since 2005 um, to assuage her cravings for her hometown cuisine. She's a, se- a seventh-generation Texan and food blogger, and while she may have left the wide expanses of the Star State for the close quarters of the Big Apple. She brings her family history and recipes to the table on her blog, The Homesick Texan, and in her second cookbook, The Homesick Texan's Family Table. The book, a follow-up to her first guide to all things deliciously Texan, showcases over a hundred recipes curated from Lisa's own family, friends, and of course her kitchen. Everything from Mexican-inspired German chocolate cake to chicken and dumplings. So Lisa, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Thank you for having me. Um, so I'm wondering, because this book is, you know, the family table, um, what it was like growing up in Texas. You said you grew up in Houston. Sort of what um, what got you into food, and what are some of your biggest food memories from that that early time? Well, I come from a family of cooks. Um, on both sides of my family, everyone loves to cook. And so for me, it was growing up, just there was always homemade food. Um, my you know, my grandparents actually grew up on farms, and when I was young, um, both of their parents' farms were actually still working farms. So we would go up on the weekends and pick crops and things like that. So I always had a really close relationship with food in Texas. And um, so it was good homemade food. Uh, we would go out to eat a couple of times a week. Uh, we'd go get Mexican food or barbecue or um, a phenomenon, which is big in Texas, called the cafeteria, which isn't like a school cafeteria, but it is like a cafeteria where, you know, it's just like a bunch of comfort food. And you actually go down a line with your tray. And um, that was very popular when I was young. Um, and, you know, it's just these 
memories you know that i don't have anything that's like specific but i do have lots of fond memories of you know like sitting on my great grandma's porch shelling peas you know um baking chocolate pie with my grandma you know watching my dad make chicken fried steak or my mom make tortillas or cream gravy and just all these things you know i didn't find them unique until i came to new york Mm -hmm. for sure yeah and people always sort of ask if you're in food, you know, like, what got you into food? Where are you, you know, where does it come from? Do you have a moment in your head where you remember being like, oh, my God, this is, this (laughs) is it? (laughs) Um, You know, I guess it might have been probably my senior year in college. Uh, We, my friends and I, we actually had a house. So it was like the first time we had a kitchen. And it was the sort of thing we like went off the meal plan and we were fending for ourselves. And that's kind of when... I really, you know, we really started getting experimental. And, of course, we didn't have any money, so it was like 101 things to do with ramen noodles, you know, <laughs> and things like that. But, um, you know, I got my first cookbook then. Uh, it was uh, Sheila Lukens. Um, it wasn't the first, it wasn't the Silver Palette. It's the second one, the New Basics Cookbook. And mm-hmm. we kind of, when I was a senior in college, we just kind of, like, cooked our way through that. And that was kind of, for me, it was some different foods, but it was kind of, I was like, oh, I really like this. So Right. I mean, it sounds like, I mean, I have a friend that grew up in Texas and visited recently, and from what you write in the book and sort of my own Northeastern you know, fantasies of Texas, it sounds like a pretty idyllic place <laughs> to grow up, both food-wise, I mean, especially food-wise. And so I'm wondering what, um, when and why you made the move to New York. Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> well, you know, it's kind of like one of those things where you don't appreciate what you have until you don't have it anymore. And uh, despite this great childhood I had, and, and I loved Texas, but I always wanted to be a little, I wanted, I guess, not more, but I was. I wanted what I thought would be a more exciting life, I guess, instead of, you know, going to my grandparents' farm in the summer and driving the tractor around, I wanted to go see Broadway plays. So I always loved New York and I actually visited for the first time when I was 10 and it just kind of, and it was that and like the book from the mixed up files of Miss Basley Frankweiler and Sesame street and all these things like made me think that New York was probably the coolest place on the planet. And so (laughs) when I turned 25, I had the opportunity to move here and and I took it. Yeah. New York does. New York is one of those cities like Paris or London that gets great marketing just from like our books and mm-hmm. movies and growing up totally I felt the same way yeah um so would you say now you've been here 19 years yeah and- I moved here in 1995 wow and just pick up and move or were you coming for uh, a job or- I did I had a job I was living in Austin before I moved here and um I was working in a children's bookstore that's no more sadly in Austin and I got a job working in a children's bookstore in New York mm-hmm. and so I just I, you know, I was 25 and a bunch of my friends from Texas, we all kind of moved up here at the same time. You know, we're young and careful. You know, when you're 25, you can do whatever you want. So So I moved up here with a a big group of Texans and we just had a blast. Cool. Are you all still here? No, sadly, I'm the only one left. They all, um, I think 9-11 was kind of like a a lot of them after 9-11 were like, I'm done. Interesting. Yeah. So they all went back. Well, one, yeah, one went to, uh. Nashville, but the rest are back in Texas. Mm-hmm. So, why do you think that was? Well, nine eleven. I, I really don't want to talk about nine eleven, but it was a pretty devastating day, you know. And I think uh, for a lot of people, it was sort of this moment where you just started reevaluating your life. And you know, I mean, I do now have a family that lives here. My cousins live here, um, Tex and Andrew. But uh, 
then none of us really had family here. We didn't have any roots. And I think 9-11 was the sort of thing where you, you kind of just wanted to get back to your roots. Um, I didn't go myself. I had a really good job and it was, you know, I had a lot of friends here and, and I thought about it, but I kind of felt I'm going to stick it out and see what happens. For sure. And you're still here, right? I'm still here. <laughs> Although I just had a really interesting conversation um, with a friend's stepdad that stuck with me um, where he said, you know, eventually most people will move either back where their family mm-hmm. is or sort of in closer proximity because you mm-hmm. know, he was just saying as you get older and the stuff starts to matter more and yeah, maybe mm-hmm. tragedies, personal tragedies mm-hmm. or national tragedies, whatever they are, you know, life makes you rethink that. Um, do you think about that? Do you think you'll you'll head back one day? I or? do. You know, I do. I mean, like I said, I have close friends here, and, and now I do have family. Um, but I, I actually, for the past, like, five years, I have been spending a lot more time in Texas. Um, I end up spending probably, over the course of a year, almost like two months in Texas. So my goal is, I mean, I do love New York, but I do love Texas, obviously. So my goal is at some point to try to find some sort of balance, like maybe do half and half. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, the biggest challenge is, is where to go in Texas. You know, I have dear friends in Austin. My mom's in Houston. My grandma and a lot of my family's in the Dallas area, you know. And then I just love, like, West Texas, like Alpine and Marfa. So for me, the biggest decision is if I do, like, get a place in Texas, where would I put down roots? Right. And I think that's really interesting about Texas and a lot of places in the States where you talk about Texas and you don't just have Texan cuisine because it's so big and so diverse and there's so much going on there culinarily mm-hmm. and just geographically it's huge yeah. I mean, what for you and you do sort of outline some of them in the book but what are the various cuisines of texas you know well you know you because like you say it's it's very regional um you know and it is a border state to mexico so you know tex-mex mexican inspired you know cuisine is very huge um and it's not just along the border i mean it's all over the state um, and actually, you know, Tex-Mex sometimes gets a bad rap, but I mean, it can be when it's well done, it can be just as delicious as any, you know, other cuisine. I mean, it's, 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 it's my favorite hands down. Um, but then, you know, you have barbecue and Texas barbecue is beef based primarily. Um, and not as saucy as, you know, some people do like sauce, but primarily it's just like smoked beef, mm-hmm. um, and smoked pork ribs. Um, you have the Southern influence. So like in East Texas, especially, you know, you have just kind of like sort of typical deep South dishes, you know, like, you know, fried catfish and, and lots of vegetables and, you know, chicken fried steak and, and fried chicken and things like that. And then also there's like smothered pork chops and, you know, it's not all fried food. Mm-hmm. And, um, then of course you have, you know, it's a, it's a border state with the Gulf of Mexico. So, you know, there's a huge seafood influence and it's interesting because you see as you go down the coast, like when you're more up. I don't know, northeastern, like closer to the Louisiana, Louisiana border. You know, it's more, you know, sort of a Cajun inspired seafood. But as you go down, like down to Padre Island, you know, you start to see more of a Mexican influence with the seafood. So that's really interesting, actually, you know, that more needs to be written about the seafood of Texas, I Mm -hmm. think. Um, And then now, um, you know, you see there's a lot of especially in Houston, you know, there's a large new population moving in. Um, There's a large Vietnamese population arriving um, and they've been, you know, staying and they've been moving there for, you know, over like 20 years. But, you know, you you do see this Vietnamese cuisine is very popular in in Houston and and that's starting to actually spread throughout the state. Um, Likewise, in Houston, there's a large Indian population. Um, So, you know, Indian cuisine is very popular there. So it's it's always evolving, which is what's really exciting about Texas food for me. Mm -hmm, For sure. And do you think that um, people sort of see that diversity or do you find like being in New York or 
when you're traveling around, people sort of lump Texas food into one thing, like, oh, Tex-Mex or, oh, you know, ribs. Yeah, yeah. I think most people who haven't been to Texas or if they've only been to Austin for South by Southwest, um, they kind of have a very, you know, I, I wouldn't say narrow. Well, maybe narrow is the right word. But, I mean, it's it's a very limited view of what Texan cuisine is. I mean, Texan and, – and, like I said, there's nothing wrong with barbecue and Tex-Mex and chicken fried steak. I mean, these are my, you know, three favorite things. But <laughs> it, it has evolved – beyond that and i think sometimes you almost get a sense like i like you know i i don't know if you saw i was in there was an article in the new york times that i talked about where i'd eaten and when i was on book tour a couple of weeks ago and um i talked about getting puffy tacos which is an iconic san antonio dish Mm -hmm. and people from san antonio were like but we have thai food now we have you know all these and i'm like i know i know but you know this Mm -hmm. is what they want to see right and i mean do you think you go back to Texas often. Do you think that there's still like this strong um, regional influence or is it sort of getting either diluted or exported or, you know, sort of people being too narrow about like, I'm just going to go to Texas and I, you know, I'm going to be in Austin. I'm going to go to Franklin barbecue. And that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Are well, we too I think narrow in our, in our thinking about Southern um, food? That's a good question. I think, it, I mean, I, especially like, when, I think, I mean, most of the people I, I talk to in New York, they either go to Austin or Houston, maybe Dallas. Um, and I think there is a lot, there is some exploration, you know, when they go to like Austin, like they'll eat at Uchi or, or Paul Key's new place, you know, um, I can't remember the name, but there's a ramen place that everyone raves about. So I think there is, you know, a sense of exploration of, of the new Texan cuisine for sure. Mm-hmm. Right. And so sort of on the flip side, now that you live in New York and when you go back to Texas, what do the Texans think about New York or New York food? Or do you see that similar sort of like? what do you eat there? Pizza and bagels? Like, is there a reversal of the narrowing? Cause I think so often we, yeah. you know, the further away you are from something, the, the simpler the sketches in your, in your mind, do you get that a lot? In yeah, no, that's a, that's a great way to describe it. Oh yeah. People think, yeah, pizza, bagels. Um, I can't remember what, it was something in Queens. It was something unusual, like Indonesian or something like that. And, and I said, we went and I was telling a friend, oh yeah, we had Indonesian cuisine. And they're like, what? In New York? <laughs> And I was like, well, of course. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, it's it's like Los Angeles or Houston, especially. I mean, it's just there's so much here. You know, I mean, I probably haven't had a bagel in three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I think there is like obviously drastic differences, but also a similarity in terms mm-hmm. of just how many different cuisines are available in such a small space. Like, yeah. I was in Austin, which is pretty cosmopolitan. It's not, you know, I don't know if you would call it deep Texas or the heart of Texas, but there was just you walk for 10, 15 minutes and you see just a real diversity of, of different foods. So have you sort of become, do you feel like you're like the ambassador for New York when you're in Texas and vice versa <laughs> here? I mean, I, I do feel when I'm here, definitely. I'm, I, I love, I mean, that's what I've been doing for the past nine years that I've done the blog. I mean, and even before I started the blog, I mean, I've always felt like an ambassador for Texan cuisine. I mean, it, Unofficial, of course, but I mean, no, it's my favorite food. I mean, and and for me, I mean, the reason why I started, I mean, back in 1995, I mean, now in New York, things are much, much improved. But back then, I mean, you couldn't find anything. You couldn't find ingredients. You know, very few restaurants sold Texas food. And, and if they did, it was terrible. And, and so it was the sort of thing where I had to take things in my own hand and, and, and cook it. And so I'd invite my New York friends over and say, this is what Texan food really is. 
you know, and so that's kind of where the whole thing evolved. So, I mean, the whole 19 years I've been here, I've been trying to tell people how wonderful Texas food is. <laughs> right. And what did you like? What do you think inspired the shift towards going from you not being able to find? I mean, what's an example of something you couldn't find? And when did you sort of see it shift in New York? Um, the I, I think I think the shift happened uh, with the rise of South by. I mean, so many people go to that now, you know, and I think they go to to Texas and they eat Texas food and they're like, man, this is really good. And I think that sort of, and also the music festivals in Austin. I mean, most of the people, like I said, most of the people I talk to just go to Austin, mm -hmm. you know, and I think they should explore the whole state, but, um, but Austin, it seems to be kind of like the nexus of nexus of it, but they come back, you know, to New York and they're like, mm, I want a breakfast taco or I want, you know, I want that great barbecue brisket like I had. And so I think it's just kind of this, you know, I don't know if there was like one particular person, but it's just a, a bunch of people that had been going and they just all kind of decided, hey, let's do it. Yes. And breakfast tacos. There are, I just saw they're serving them somewhere at uh, Gotham West Market. Oh, really? And oh, like, yeah, yeah. I saw that. To go. I mean, I don't know if it'll be the same, but yeah. Yeah, it's true. There are certain foods that you just get like a, a yeah. niche for. Absolutely. If you will. Yeah. So you actually, you make a lot of stuff from scratch. Mm -hmm. Can you talk, was that just born of necessity or are you still, um, you still do that now, even though, you know, like you grind your own chili powder, that's not something you have to do. Um, can you talk a little bit about why you do that and, and what you think you, um, get out of it both personally and, and what the food gets from, from starting right from, from the ground floor and making a lot of those ingredients yourself? Sure. Um, yeah, no, uh, well it did, it did start out of necessity. Um, when I was growing up in Texas, you know, chili, we made our chili with chili powder, which you could find, you know, millions of varieties of in Texas. And it was, you know, made in Texas, um, flour tortillas, you could find flour, you know, fresh from the, you know, the tortilla maker, warm, fresh flour and corn tortillas in Texas, all these basic, you know, things in your larder, you know, you could not find in New York, mm -hmm. you know, like I couldn't find good chili powder. I couldn't find good flour tortillas or corn tortillas. And so, a lot of it, I mean, it was totally out of necessity. You know, there were a lot of Mexican markets, like in Queens, and there was actually one in my neighborhood. I was up by Columbia when I first moved here. And, and so I could find whole chili pods. Mm -hmm. And so it was. It was just I had to go back to the basics and start from scratch. And, you know, I taught myself how to make flour tortillas um, with a Diana Kennedy book and much trial and error. Mm -hmm. um, my mom actually sent me her tortilla press, which was really great. And, and so I had, you know, the tools. And, and, and But as I was doing these things from scratch that, you know, normally I wouldn't, ha or even like, you know, I would, I would have, you know, just had like a convenient product when I lived in Texas. Salsa mm -hmm. is another example. Um, I found that they tasted better when you started from scratch and you had to put a little bit more effort into it, but I just felt the flavor profile was so much superior and it was fun. I mean, I, 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 I love to cook, so it wasn't for me trouble or burdensome. It was, it was joyful. So, and I still do it that way. Right. And if you do ever have to reach for like a, oh, I really don't feel like making tortillas or <laughs> this salsa, are there any companies or products that you're like, you know what, they're doing it well enough that I will grab this if I need to, or is it still like... You know, that's a good question. I haven't bought tortillas or salsa in New York <laughs> in years. So I, you know, you know, I have to say though, um, I was really excited when Whole Foods opened here. I think they opened in... 2001 maybe or 2000 anyway but you know because it's a texas-based grocery store chain and then i knew that if i wanted like if you know their their house sauces or flour tortillas 
probably had some Texan DNA in it. And mm-hmm. so if I needed to, you know, get something that that was available. For sure. Yeah. I always forget that Whole Foods I know. in Austin. Yeah. No. And, and yeah. Yeah. It's, yep. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've been shopping there my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like your local grocery store. Well, we're actually just going to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We're talking to the homesick Texan herself, Lisa Fain, here on Eat Your Words. I'm your host, Talia Ralph. This is Heritage Radio Network. National Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at InternationalCulinaryCenter.com. Welcome back to Eat Your Words. I'm your host, Talia Ralph. We're here with Lisa Fain, blogger and cookbook author of The Homesick Texan, bringing Texas recipes to New York City and now across the country and the world. Thanks for being with us, Lisa. Thank you. Um, So you started blogging about your forays into Texan food here in New York City in 2005. What made you make the leap from just like, hey, I really miss this and I'm making this for myself and my friends to, hey, I want to put this online, have a, have a bigger audience. How did that start? Um, blogging, I guess kind of, I had a, a good friend who was doing blogging, not food blogging. I guess he probably started around 2003 and you know, you started seeing more and more blogs, you know, about whatever, anything. And then around 2005, late 2004, early 2005, I discovered food blogs and there was only a handful of them, but it was the sort of thing, you know, I love to take photos. I love to cook and I like to write. And and so I thought, hey, this looks like it would be fun. I mean, it was totally a hobby. I was um, a managing editor at a magazine at the time. And, you know, and back then, which is interesting, I mean, now blogs, most, not most people, but a lot of people start them with the mindset of, I'm going to make money from this. They start it from a business point of view. But back then, it was purely a hobbyist sort of thing. And and for me, it was just, cooking was already my hobby. Photo- photography was already a hobby, and so was writing. So for me, it was just a great way to combine all three passions into one and let my grandma and my mom in Texas know what I was up to. You know, I really, I mean, I, if you had said in, in 2006 that I would have written two books and I'd be talking to you on a radio show, I would never have thought that would happen. Yeah, well, 2005, I guess, was like the boom or the beginning yeah. of the internet was a little bit earlier, but I feel like people started massing around this idea of blogs, so you kind of got in mm-hmm. early. What was the learning curve like? I mean, was it... There was none. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, it was... I mean, the software, I think, is pretty simple, and I already knew how to take photos, and, and you know, I mean... I, it maybe was like a 10 minute thing, but I mean, that's the, that's the wonderful thing about blogging is that, you know, these tools are, are so simple 
and they're available to anyone. I mean, my grandpa's no longer here, but um, before he died, he had a blog. I mean, he, you know, this 89-year-old man mm-hmm. writing about World War II on the Internet. Wow. I mean, you know, so, I mean, I think anybody can do it, which is really cool. For sure, yeah. I mean, I have... I've tried and I have many, you know, blogs in my, my blog graveyard, as I'm sure <laughs> many writers and, you know, yeah. food people or hobbyists in general, like you're saying, do, um, what advice do you have for people looking to start them aside from like, keep it up? Or how did you sort of inspire yourself to regularly post? Cause I think that's the toughest challenge. Yeah. Like you don't really know who's out there at the beginning and, um, you don't really know who's waiting to read it. how do you sort of keep yourself going and, and what advice would you give to people who are wanting to blog about i think well i think the most important thing when you have a blog is to get joy from it and and hopefully be passionate about what you're writing about because i think that interior motivation is what's going to keep you going because you might not always get comments and you might not always get someone saying hey great job but if you love what you're doing already that won't matter and i think that's the most important thing you know don't get too wrapped up on all the other stuff do it because you love it and I think everything else will follow. And I know that sounds like a cliche, but I, I, I really think it's true. I mean, I think for me, I mean, I love Texas food. And for me, it's it's just, I mean, I'll, I'll spend hours a week just researching or, you know, talking to friends and family about, you know, memories and recipes or, you know, reading old newspapers. And for me, that's like the best way to spend my time. You know, I'm, it's not work. It's, it's very fun for me. And so that's what keeps me going. And I think anybody to have a long-term relationship with the blog, you know, you, I mean, it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's a marriage, but you got to love what you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Some, some kind of, sometimes you get bored with it, but I think, you know, if you, if you want to, you know, parlay it into anything, you know, you, you should be, you should post on a regular basis. Um, you know, people post every day and I personally think that's ridiculous. I mean, I mean, if you want to do that, that's fine, but there's just so much content out there now. Mm that it's really the rare person that's going to keep up with something every day. I, I'm, I'm a bad blogger. I blog, I've been blogging almost every week, but I usually do two every two weeks um, because I've been busy with the books and stuff like that. But, I, you know, just be regular. I mean, don't blog like twice a year. <laughs> <laughs> right. Some sort of pattern. Got yeah. Um, and so, like you're saying, just in your, your own life and especially with, this book, The Family Table, you were culling a lot of recipes from your family and friends, right? And so can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? I imagine there was a big sort of emotional component or some some moments where you're like, wow, I mean, what was it like going through those recipes? Well, yeah, it was, it was, it was, for me, it was, it was emotional, but I mean, it was always like really happy emotions, um, more, yeah, I mean, it was like really, I knew both of my great grandmothers, I did have that, um, privilege um so i remember them but i didn't know them that well and you know my grandma she gave me these like stacks of handwritten recipe cards from them and so when i was going through their recipes you know it was like they were in the kitchen with me and it was just you know feeling connected to this past that i sort of remembered but you know i never i don't really remember cooking with them or anything like that so for me it was just this like great way to connect with my you know who i was and where i was from Mm -hmm. and so um yeah that's kind of how it was and then also I do have recipes in there from dear friends and, and things that they grew up with. You know, they might have, like, I have my friend's um, gumbo recipe. You know, he's from southeast Texas. And my family didn't really do gumbo, but in southeast Texas, which is on the Louisiana border, they totally do gumbo. But it's a Texas-style gumbo. It's not like a gumbo you're going to find in Opelousas, Louisiana. And that was fun for me, too. You know, just, you know, other families and what they consider, you know, their sort of iconic Texan dishes. That mm-hmm. was fun. 
So what is a tax on gumbo? Because I've been to Louisiana and I know that the debate about gumbo there <laughs> yeah. is fierce as well. So yeah. how does, what do Texans say? Oh, well, he, he uh, what made his a Texas gumbo is um, he didn't use the Trinity, which was unusual, but he also had smoked Texas sausage in it. That was like the key that made it more Texan. But then, you know, I know like I do have Cajun friends and they're like, you can never put tomatoes in gumbo. And I know a lot of Texans that put their tomatoes that put tomatoes in gumbo. So mm-hmm. there's also gumbo, chili and barbecue are three things. If you ever want to get in an argument or have a long discussion, just bring those topics up. Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. I have learned that the hard way. <laughs> so speaking of, I mean, everybody has their, um, their hometown spots that they go and you do get back to Texas a decent amount. Where do you eat? Then you're, when you're there and, and what do you miss when you're not? You're just like, oh, I need. Well, when I go home to Houston, um, usually my first stop off the plane is I go into town, uh, kind of outside of downtown, um, Ninfas on Navigation, which is um, the original Ninfas. Ninfas became a chain and it's a, a long story and I don't want to go into it. But basically when it became a chain, it, it got the quality was diluted and then the family sold. So this restaurant actually has no connection with the original family, but it is the original recipes and the quality is as it always was. And it is my favorite. And it's just this iconic Houston Tex-Mex. Um, it's very beef based. You know, they say that Ninfa, you know, was the one that popular, popularized, ugh, I can't talk, popularized fajitas in, in Houston. And then she also has this green salsa that's like tomatillos and avocados and really creamy. And um, I don't know if she was the first one to serve it, but in Houston, uh, but she was the one that made it really popular in Houston. And so these two things, you know, fajitas, beef fajitas or, or tacos al carbon, and this green salsa is total Houston classic Tex-Mex, you know. Oh, and so awesome. it is so good. <laughs> I want some. Yeah. Um, and you're also a certified barbecue judge. Yeah. Right. I've always wondered because you hear that all the time, like so-and-so author, TV personality, chef, barbecue <laughs> judge. How does that happen? Do you take a class. You? <laughs> no, you, you actually take a class. Um, and it's the Kansas city barbecue society and they, they train you. And, and, and there's two, two main schools of barbecue competition um, there's the Memphis, and then there's the Kansas City style. And I'm not an expert, so I'm not going to talk too much about that. But basically, um, for the Kansas City style, before you can be a judge at a Kansas, a Kansas City certified competition, you have to, like, take this all-day class. And you basically just sit around and eat meat all day. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds really hard. It is. Yeah, it's a challenge. <laughs> yeah, I'm joking, but I'm also serious because I've, I've had to, like, tape test things before, and you really got to have, like restraint and you got to have stamina yeah yeah well of course you know like a like an amateur you know i'm like oh a whole thing of ribs you know and then by the end you're like just one bite (laughs) (laughs) one bite at a time yeah so when was the last do you judge regularly no i haven't judged in forever um there aren't as many opportunities in new york city most of the competitions are um out on long island or up in the northeast and i don't have a car and it's always I'd like to judge again, though. It's fun. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Do you have any, like, crazy stories from when you did judge or memorable? Oh, no. Like- <laughs> no. I, I didn't actually judge that many. So, no. Okay. Yeah. I've actually done a lot more chili competitions than barbecue. Interesting. So, chili competitions. Uh-huh. The, um, every May, usually, uh, the Texas Longhorns, the Texas X's, uh, the Longhorn, the University of Texas Longhorn Alumni Association, uh, they do a big chili cook-off. And I've been a judge for that for many years. 
Well, and you say in the book that if chili has beans in it, then it's not chili anymore. I, that, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's a Texan thing. I didn't come up with that, but I mean, th- I mean, that's how I was raised, and that is actually like chili true chili competitions down in, in Texas where there's actual rules and you can't have beans. Um, <laughs> that's in the rule book. It yeah. is in the rule book. Yeah. There's a lot of rules, but that's like the main one. Um, and so you just grow up knowing that Texas chili doesn't have beans or it shouldn't have beans. But, um, I don't, I, some people say, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why some, the most popular might be just the pure fact that, um, that beans are great on their own and, and chili's great on their own. And, you know, it almost disrespects both of them if you combine the two. I don't know if that's true or not. Interesting. Have you ever had a bean chili that you've enjoyed, or you don't call it, you can't even call it chili? Yeah, no, I usually call it bean soup. But I, <laughs> I'm going to admit something. Um, when I was uh, probably like 11 years old, I got really rebellious, and there was a, a woman who had moved from a family had moved from like Michigan to our to Houston at our church, and she brought in chili with beans. And for like a year, I made my mom put beans in my chili <laughs> as my rebellion. <laughs> wow. My family was horrified, but she did, but she used uh, ranch style beans, which is a canned bean in Texas. So I mean, it was still you know authentic. Yeah, but bean. she was just like, I guess if you're going to rebel, this is a fine way to rebel versus doing other things. But still, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure a lot of parents wish that their teenagers would do that. Like, I want <laughs> I want beans in my chili. Even though- not the way we do it here. <laughs> well, we're um, just about out of time, Lisa, but one last question. I'm sure you're getting it a lot, but what are some of your favorite recipes in the book or that you cook or, I mean, sort of recipes like the beanless chili that people would say like, hey, I never knew that about Texan food. Yeah. What sort um, of stands out for you in the book? Um, in the book, well, there's a recipe in there for very classic chicken and dumplings which um, I kind of jazz it up a little bit with some cilantro and chipotle chilies, but it's basically like kind of how your great-grandma made it, but I've just made it a little bit fresher. And, you know, that's more old-fashioned kind of Texan cooking and Mm -hmm. Southern cooking in general, but I love that recipe. Um, The chicken spaghetti, which is chicken and and spaghetti and chili peppers and tomatoes and lots of cheese. That's, again, it's very old-fashioned but very delicious, and I've updated it, too. I I got rid of the Velveeta and the cream soups. (laughs) Pecan pie, it's a state dish of Texas, and my grandma's recipes in the book. So there's, I mean, you know, it's funny, like, people will say, what's your favorite recipe? And I love them all. I mean, they're all, it's a good, I'm biased, but <laughs> they're good. Dear. Yeah. Yeah, well, we're out of time, but thank you so much for being with us. This has been another great episode of Eat Your Words. Lisa Fain's new book, Homesick Texan Family Table, is out now, so definitely check it out. She also has a blog. And thank you guys so much for listening. This is Heritage Radio Network. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>